Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Chenny Wu, in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Congress has reached a deal on a government funding bill that's worth $1.5 trillion. They're also approving a White House request to send billions in emergency money to support Ukraine. Countering China's tech threat, that's what President Biden aimed to do today in a meeting with America's top tech firms. Where is he getting stuck and what needs to be done? As the war between Russia and Ukraine continues, NTD News has a team on the ground in neighboring Poland. They spoke with several refugees, including a student who escaped Ukraine, but whose family couldn't. Reports claim that a Navy warship has been put in timeout, declared non-deployable. Its commander is unvaccinated and currently suing the government. Is this tit for tat? We investigate. Yoon Suk-yeol is South Korea's new president. He's expected to seek a stronger alliance with the U.S., but take a tougher stance on North Korea and China. On Capitol Hill today, lawmakers agreed to spend $1.5 trillion. Most of it is for annual government spending, but it also includes billions of dollars in emergency funds to support Ukraine. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. Half a year late, top lawmakers have reached a deal on their annual government funding bill. This deal comes after Congress has had to settle for short-term fixes three times in a row for failing to reach agreements. We came up with a bill, it's a billion and a half, trillion and a half dollars that will be spent this year. This includes over $13 billion in emergency money to support European allies and Ukraine for humanitarian security and economic assistance. The spending bill comes at a consequential moment. War in Europe has focused the energies of Congress into getting something done and getting it done fast, quickly. The White House also requested Congress to spend another $15 billion for pandemic response. But late Wednesday afternoon, congressional leaders had to strip this because of disagreements over how to offset the costs of the new spending. The Republicans insisted that every penny uh, for the COVID be offset. Democrats are now aiming to pass more pandemic money in the months ahead. The rest of the money will fund government agencies. Democrats and Republicans came to an agreement by spending more, with increased funding for both of the party's top priorities. Democrats are happy with more spending on the home front, a $400 per student raise for the Pell Grant, nearly $300 million for affordable housing projects, $3 billion for homeless assistance, and historic investments in renewable energy. And Republicans praise the bill's ban on using federal money for abortions and the $782 billion set aside for defense. But one conservative group is urging Republicans to hold back their vote and not to settle for what they call small victories. And here's what House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy had to say about this. I think Republicans look to, just like in the NDAA, the number of successes we had to modernize our military, to be able to protect from that sense. There's a lot of people that look at that, that that's a positive. Not on the overall bill itself, no. Still, top Republican senators say they expect this spending bill to get strong bipartisan support. And lawmakers are working on a backup plan to fund the government through early next week temporarily for the fourth time to prevent a government shutdown in the case that lawmakers can't get this full annual funding bill through Congress and to Biden's desk before Friday when that government funding runs out. 
Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Get it done. That's what the president is saying today as he pushes for a bill aimed to boost U.S. competitiveness. NTD's Iris Tao has more. It matters. So let's get it done. President Biden is making another push to pass legislation aimed at boosting U.S. competitiveness with China. Companies are ready to do more, a lot more, if Congress passes the Bipartisan Innovation Act. Inviting leaders of top U.S. tech firms to the White House, Biden on Wednesday asked them to speak out and urge Congress to address their needs, especially regarding a semiconductor shortage. They're found in almost every one of our appliances, and they're absolutely critical. Versions of the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act have passed both the House and the Senate, but lawmakers have been slow on getting together to resolve the differences and get it to Biden's desk. The bill includes billions of dollars to boost semiconductor production in the U.S. and domestic manufacturing overall. It's been said that speed kills, and in this sense, slow speed kills. We need to get this done. We need to get it on your desk. We need to get it signed uh, so that we can not just catch up with the competition, but lead. Biden also invited governors of two manufacturing-heavy states, Michigan and Indiana. They said producing more domestically will also alleviate other bottlenecks, such as price increases. In places like Michigan, this is about creating good-paying jobs. This is about lowering costs for families. This is about our national security. The push comes as Beijing rushes to build a domestic supply chain for semiconductors immune to U.S. sanctions. And Biden has been stressing the need for the U.S. to win the competition of this century. To put us in a path to win the economic competition of the 21st century that we face with the rest of the world, particularly China. Meanwhile, China has been a major supplier of chips for Russia before its invasion of Ukraine. And the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo warned on Tuesday that major Chinese chip makers will be cut off from U.S. equipment and be essentially shut down if they violate the current ban on exporting chips to Russia. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Evacuation efforts along Russia's humanit Ukraine's humanitarian corridors enter into the second day. Russia and Ukraine agreed to a 12-hour ceasefire along six evacuation routes. Here are the details. Russia and Ukraine agreed to observe a temporary ceasefire along six humanitarian corridors, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. local time Wednesday. The corridors will lead from Sumy, Mariupol, and Arhodar, Volnovaka, Izium, and several towns around Kyiv to other Ukrainian cities. Our government officials are working on this. Our servicemen have created all the conditions. If there's even one shot, full responsibility lives with the invaders. The Ukrainian side expects to evacuate some 18,000 people from embattled towns in the Kyiv region to the capital itself. They call on Russia to honor the ceasefire and say that only one humanitarian corridor was successfully running on Tuesday. It evacuated some 5,000 people from the city of Sumy. I am addressing the Russian Federation. You have publicly undertaken official responsibility to carry out a ceasefire from 9 p.m. on March 9, 2022. We have a negative experience when you have not fulfilled your responsibilities. Ukrainian authorities say Russian forces struck a children's hospital and maternity ward in the port city of Mariupol. It's one of the cities with humanitarian corridors and one of the hardest hit by the war. 
There was an airstrike near to the maternity hospital. At the moment, we continue to help the wounded and are preparing to evacuate them. Police are working together with the Army to help those who need it. Officials say at least 17 people were injured. Meanwhile, Russia on Wednesday acknowledged for the first time there are conscript soldiers fighting in Ukraine. Unfortunately, we discovered some facts of the presence of militaries of urgent service in units of Russian armed forces taking part in special military operation on the territory of Ukraine. Particularly, all such militaries have been withdrawn to the territory of Russia. And the Pentagon on Wednesday rejected Poland's offer of its MiG-29 fighter jets. The Pentagon says the offer is not tenable and that using the fighter jets for Ukraine raises serious concerns for the entire NATO alliance. They say Russia would view the move as escalatory. A Ukrainian student lived in a bomb shelter during the first 10 days of the Russia-Ukraine war. He's now in Poland, but the rest of his family remains in Ukraine. NTD spoke with the student who recently arrived in Warsaw, Poland. We arrived today in Poland and came to the bus shelter where people are coming by the thousand from Ukraine. Hundreds of volunteers are helping out, providing food and shelter and all kinds of other services like a phone if you need to call, the, call a loved one. We talked with the main organizer who told us about the efforts and the love and compassion that the Polish people are giving to the Ukrainian people. We met with my grandma who yesterday make, made it over the border. She told us she came right here and somebody helped her to get everything she needed and uh, meet with a family member of, of ours. A lot of things happening here, but this is not the real situation. The real situation is happening in Ukraine. And we talked with somebody who came from the war. In the first day of war, um, administration um, don't come to us, but they phone us and help us. Um, we organized our students and uh, go to their uh, down on the floor, like bomb uh, bomb uh, The bomb shelter. Bomb shelter, and uh, they have leave for uh, uh, ten days. Uh, I'm really lucky because uh, I sit on the uh, train Kiev Lviv, but uh, this train said uh, in the half of the way that uh, we not uh, driving to Lviv, we will drive to the uh, to Poland. My family don't speak with me about five days because they don't have communication. They don't have energy, they don't have light, they don't have water. Every evening I write to them very big SMS how, what I think, what I, about my situation, what I do. And I, in, inside me I understand, maybe, the, I believe in that they, they hear me. Tomorrow we're going to go to the border and bring you more news and more information about what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. NTD News, Dan Skorbak, Warsaw, Poland. A United Kingdom cabinet minister says nearly 800 Ukrainians have already received a UK visa and that there are more appointments available as the government accelerates visa processing. Kyiv's ambassador is calling for the government to ease some requirements. NTD's Joy Dugid has more. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps said the government is stepping up the pace of admitting Ukrainian refugees and that there are lessons to be learned in its response to the crisis. But uh, we, we, we've got uh, some very large visa 
uh, schemes uh, coming into place uh, with very large numbers. And of course, people would expect us to make sure that we know exactly who's coming to the country, uh, which is why the process takes a little bit of time. Shapps told BBC Breakfast that the UK has issued 760 visas to Ukrainian refugees and 6,000 appointments are available each day as the processing rate has increased. But he emphasised that not every Ukrainian wants to come to the UK and that their government wants them to stay in countries close to home. And I just want to stress that President Zelensky is saying to us he wants people to stay closer to Ukraine so that they can come back and assist in the rebuild. Shap said the Ukraine family scheme can bring up to 200,000 people to the UK and there will be a second scheme allowing Ukrainians to be sponsored to enter. He defended the government's decision to site a new visa processing centre in Lille rather than Calais, where many refugees hoping to reach the UK have been heading. I don't want to, we don't want to see people caught up with the criminal gangs in Calais uh, and the like. We've got to keep this process entirely uh, separate because we don't want people traffickers to be the way that, uh, that the people get caught up in. Ukraine's ambassador to the UK told the Commons Home Affairs Committee that his embassy can help deal with refugees if visa rules are lifted. I don't want to see these pictures. People are banging at the door somewhere in Calais and scratching the doors, which is quite, quite sealed. So if we can re release this, if we can resolve this issue right away, we will, as my embassy, we will work. The ambassador expects at least 100,000 Ukrainians will try to reunite with relatives in the UK. Joy Dugid, NTD News. From cookies to soap, diapers to detergent, consumer goods manufacturers are now feeling the heat over their business in Russia. Two of the biggest, Procter & Gamble and Unilever, say they will continue to sell essential goods in Russia though they have ended new capital investments and suspended advertising. Food makers Nestle and Dannon took similar approaches. Chocolate maker Mondelez and Kimberly Clark, maker of Huggies diapers, haven't announced any plans. Besides wanting to hang on to sales, such firms don't want to be seen as hurting ordinary Russia's, Russians by denying them essentials or putting them out of work. But the pressure continues to mount. McDonald's, Starbucks, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola have all curtailed their operations in Russia. Such moves have followed pressure from big market players like the New York State Pension Fund. A judge is protecting an unvaccinated Navy commander from punishment related to his lawsuit. The Navy's disciplinary hands may be tied, but several reports claim that the commander's warship was put in timeout. Is this tit for tat? NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. A Navy commander is suing his branch of the military for denying his religious exemption to the COVID-19 vaccine. Protected by a court order, he's one of a few serving without being vaccinated. But now reports claim that his Virginia-based warship has been put in time out, declared non-deployable. We contacted the Navy and the Department of Justice, but neither confirmed nor denied these reports. The commander's legal counsel told NTD News that this issue came up in court last week. In fact, when they filed their declaration saying that the ship was not deployable, it was actually deployed at sea for two-week trials and testing. The commander was in full control and operating the same naval ship. He has never been removed from the command. 
In an attempt to reverse the commander's legal protection, the Navy said it has lost confidence in the commander's ability to lead and will not deploy the warship with him in command. The military also accused him of disobeying orders, making misleading statements, and exposing dozens of his crew to COVID-19 after experiencing symptoms. But the judge has upheld the commander's immunity. Well, we're going to let the judge know that the military misrepresented. They said that the ship's not deployable, and yet the Navy commander is going to testify. In fact, he was in command of the ship deployed at sea for two-week drills. Staver says he'll submit that information in court on Thursday. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Florida has published new guidance on COVID-19 vaccines for children. The state's Department of Health initially said it would recommend against the vaccine for healthy kids. But it's taken a softer approach in its final guidance, saying healthy children aged 5 to 17 may not benefit from receiving the currently available COVID-19 vaccine that kids with underlying conditions are the best candidates for the shot. Harvard Medical School says most infected children are asymptomatic or suffer from mild symptoms. The Florida guidance cites multiple studies, including one on the risk of myocarditis associated with the vaccine. The state recommends that parents discuss the risks and potential benefits of vaccination with the child's health care provider. The Biden administration is canceling more than $6 billion worth of federal student loan debt. Today, the U.S. Department of Education said it has identified 100,000 borrowers who are eligible for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. The program launched 15 years ago, but the Biden administration made changes to it in October. Now some borrowers have until October 31st to apply for loan forgiveness. For more information on student loan debt cancellation, visit the Department of Education's website at ed.gov. As candidates are hitting the campaign trail in the run-up to the midterm primaries, courts are seeing an uptick in redistricting cases. What exactly is redistricting, and why are some voters concerned? NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Six Arkansas residents, including two Democratic state lawmakers, are challenging the new U.S. House district lines in a lawsuit filed Monday. They claim the new lines violate the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act because they split predominantly black voters out of the heavily Democratic Pulaski County into two other districts. This is one of a number of cases being filed in several courts across the country by voters and lawmakers. Jeffrey Weiss, a national election expert, explains what redistricting is and why it's important. A redistricting is the process where legislative district boundaries are redrawn every 10 years after the federal decennial census is taken. This is to comply with the constitutional mandate that districts be equipopulous. Redistricting is important for two main reasons. That each district be roughly the same population as all others within a state or within a city. Uh, that's called the one person, one vote doctrine. Uh, the second that applies nationally is the Federal Voting Rights Act, that in certain situations, minority voting strength isn't diluted or weakened. Uh, and the Voting Rights Act uh, guarantees that uh, minority voters have the equal opportunity to elect candidates of choice where you have these high levels of vote dilution. How district boundaries are drawn can impact election outcomes. And the first step after the lines are drawn are for candidates to run in primaries to uh, sort out 
who will be that party's candidate in the general election coming up in November. A lawsuit filed in a New York state court claims district lines favor Democrats. Another in Washington state contends Latino voting power is diluted. Weiss says concerned voters may want to get involved before the lines are drawn. I suggest that people look out the window, your, your, your streets, your schools, your hospitals, your senior centers, your infrastructure, all of that is based on government support. And that support is determined by who represents you in legislative bodies, the, the elected officials who, uh, who pass the laws that support the programs that make your quality of life better. And that, that all gets down to redistricting. For more information, contact your local legislature or election commission. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a high school boy shines on the musical stage after losing a leg to cancer. He inspires the audience with his resilience and upbeat spirit. And a Maryland hospital says the first person to receive a pig heart transplant has died. That and more here on NTD News. A high school boy tells his story of resilience and optimism. The 18-year-old boy lost his leg to cancer, but he didn't lose his faith in life. In the small Michigan town of Cadillac, Disney's high school musical is ready to hit the stage. One of the lead actors, Mikhail McGuire, survived cancer years ago, though at the cost of losing one leg. I don't think I've really thought about cancer itself for four years. I've thought about like my leg and amputation, but it really hasn't been about cancer all that much. A dance-based show was a tough challenge for Mikhail with his prosthetic leg. But the 18-year-old says he just wants the audience to enjoy the show. You're going to have tough times, but like if you continue to dwell on those tough times while you're having these good times, it's going to ruin the fun of the moment. Mikhail McGuire was diagnosed with bone cancer when he was 11. He underwent chemotherapy and has been cancer-free over five years. As hope waned for saving his left leg, he eventually opted for an above-knee amputation. With his limb salvage leg, when he had his full leg, he was more handicapped than he is now without his leg. It was like a dead weight. It was dead weight for him. He also plays soccer and golf, and even learned to ski on one leg. A lot of it comes with the mindset. What are you going to do and where are you going to go? What do you want to be? Don't let this stop you from living. Mikhail says he tried to stay focused on the positive, even when the pandemic shuts down the world and makes it impossible to perform on stage. This spirit passes on to those around him. I'm sure as a teenage boy, he's been in a bad mood at some point, but I've never seen it. He just always just channels this great positive can-do attitude. He's just an absolute joy to be around. He's one of the finest humans I know, for sure. Next year, Mikhail will be attending college. He wishes to become a pediatric oncologist in the future and to help children with cancer just like him. The first person to receive a heart transplant from a pig has died two months after the experimental procedure at a Maryland hospital. Doctors at the University of Maryland Medical Center on Wednesday announced the death of David Bennett, the 57-year-old man who had received a heart transplant from a pig two months ago. The medical center said that his condition had begun deteriorating several days earlier, but didn't give further details. This has not in any way, um, you know, dampened my enthusiasm um, about uh, xenotransplantation and the fact that it's close at hand. 
In fact, just the opposite. The procedure marked the first time that an animal-to-human heart transplant was not immediately rejected by the patient's body. This time, the surgeons used a heart from a gene-edited pig. Scientists had modified the animal to remove pig genes that trigger the hyperfast rejection and add human genes to help the body accept the organ. Over the years, the ethics of xenotransplantation, or the transplanting of living cells, tissues or organs from one species to another, have been debated. Those who favor this type of technology, they rely on the ethical principle that saving a human life is a vital concern. And any technology that is, uh, has the potential to save human life, lives has to be explored in its, both in its scientific, medical and ethical parameters. In the U.S., more than 106,000 people remain on the national waiting list for organs, and thousands die every year before getting one. Physicians and scientists are not moral dictators. They're not there to decide who has the right to receive medication or treatment. Treatment in medicine is a function of need, not of moral judgment. Some critics of xenotransplantation say it violates nature and God's will, while others say it's a risky procedure that benefits very few people. Tennis star Novak Djokovic announced today his withdrawal from the BMP Pariba Open in California. Djokovic says he won't be playing in the U.S. because he's unvaccinated, bringing into doubt his status for this summer's U.S. Open. And today's Dave Martin has more. World number two Novak Djokovic had previously received a first-round bye to the BNP Paribas Open, a tournament he's won five times before, but today announced he won't be playing there or at Miami later this month because he's unvaccinated. The withdrawals add to an already tumultuous season for one of the world's most accomplished players. The former number one player was famously deported from Australia in January after getting his visa canceled because of his vaccination status on the eve of the Australian Open. Djokovic, who's won that tournament a record nine times, had to watch from home as one of his chief rivals, Rafael Nadal, took home the trophy. While the tournaments at Indian Wells and Miami aren't one of the four Grand Slams, it could be a precursor to Djokovic playing at other U.S. tournaments, including the U.S. Open that starts in August. Aaron Rodgers has tweeted confirmation that he plans to return to the Green Bay Packers, but said the reports of him signing a contract are inaccurate, as are the terms of the contract that he was said to have signed. Ian Rapoport of the NFL Network had reported yesterday that Rodgers had agreed to a four-year, $200 million contract to stay in Green Bay with $153 million guaranteed. Elsewhere in the NFL, the Seattle Seahawks are continuing their rebuild by releasing six-time All-Pro linebacker Bobby Wagner. This according to NFL Network's Tom Pelissero. The 31-year-old Wagner has been named to eight straight Pro Bowls. The announcement of his release comes the same day as the announcement of Seattle's blockbuster trade with Denver that sent star quarterback Russell Wilson to the Broncos. Wagner and Wilson were second and third round selections respectively by the Seahawks in a very productive 2012 draft for Seattle and have been mainstays of the team for a decade. Dave Martin, NTD News. Coming up, President Biden with an executive order on cryptocurrency. Is this good news or bad news for digital assets? As gas prices continue rising, some Californians are looking for ways to cut back on the expense. One option they're considering, public transportation. And inheriting property in California can come with a heavy tax bill. 
One executive says these taxes have consequences. That and more here on NTD News. Crypto news. President Biden today ordered the government to study the risks and benefits of cryptocurrencies and a digital dollar. What could it mean for the crypto industry as a whole? NTD's Phil Zoe reports. The U.S. government is taking cryptocurrency seriously. That's after President Biden issued an executive order to look at the benefits and risks of crypto and a potential central bank digital dollar. The head of a blockchain investment fund says the government might create a crypto-specific agency to regulate the assets. Bigger than just the SEC, it's bigger than just the CFTC, it's bigger than FinCEN. And rather than let these agencies kind of squabble with each other and have a land grab over who can cover what crypto asset, uh, there needs to be more of a holistic approach. Ralph Cooper is the founder of two metaverse companies. He says regulation is going to help give crypto credibility. The Biden administration is not trying to shut it down. The Biden administration is looking to incorporate it into, in the legal system that we have. And that's a good thing. Bitcoin was up around 8% today on the news, hovering around $42,000. They're looking to protect consumers and businesses. Uh, they're looking to make sure national security is not uh, at risk. Chris Klein at Bitcoin IRA says, this is a rare occasion when an entire asset is being talked about by the U.S. government. The last two times an entire financial class or asset class was mentioned was in 1933 when FDR nationalized gold holdings and in 71 when Nixon mentioned that we're coming off the gold standard for the U.S. dollar. But crypto investor Bob Bilbrook says this regulation might be bad news for Bitcoin. The central banks of most um, countries will probably release their own um, digital currency, or what they call a CBDC, which is a central bank digital currency. If that happens, Billbrook predicts Bitcoin will become less important since many countries may start using their own digital currency instead. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Gas prices are still on the rise, and as people seek ways to cut down on gas expenses, public transit is becoming a popular alternative. NTD's Adelina Asoltani has the details. As some gas prices hit a high of nearly $7 per gallon in the California Bay Area, some locals are looking for cheaper alternatives. Caltrain, a local public transit agency, jokingly suggested an innovative idea in a Twitter post. BART, like Caltrain, welcomes more people to choose public transportation as a cheaper alternative to driving. But we're not happy that prices are going up for people who are putting gasoline in their cars, but we are happy to welcome them to BART should they want to use public transportation and save money and save the environment at the same time. Allison said BART is working hard on upgrading its train stations. We rebuilt them, made them safer, more welcoming, and more clean. Today we are at Berryessa North San Jose, last station on the BART train here in San Jose. You take the train from here all the way one hour to Embarcadero, San Francisco, that is only $5. It's half the price and half the time if you were to drive your car. Allison added that BART fares have remained the same over the past two years. Now that uh, you know people are paying so much money at the gas pump, we haven't had a price increase since January of 2020. Taking public transportation can cost half the price while avoiding notorious Bay Area traffic. 
Some Bay Area residents are riding BART for the first time. I need to go to San Francisco to do a, a small job. And um, because of the gas prices, I'm not, I'm not uh, taking my car right now. So I thought about taking alternate transportation. Locals say time spent on the road is a major factor in deciding on whether to take public transit. Getting the gas is not something I even wanted to think about. So that's another reason, actually. But the time was the main factor. But uh, gas is getting up there. So I think I'll be on BART for, for a while. I don't want to spend, you know, 90 bucks a tank. Emily Hodges, a South Bay resident, says she travels to Berkeley once a week, but no longer drives because... I drove a couple times and it was a pain. There was a lot of traffic and parking is hard to find. So this was just more convenient. Hodges added that she enjoys the train ride. It's nice, it's relaxing, and you don't have to drive. BART sees approximately 432,000 trips on weekdays and 126 million trips annually. During peak commute hours, nearly 25,000 people ride through the Transbay tube into downtown San Francisco. Adelina Sultane, NTD News, California. Anyone inheriting property in California may receive a shocking tax bill one year after the fact. One executive from a taxpayer's association explains the consequences of a new inheritance tax. In February 2021, Proposition 19, also known as the Property Tax Transfers, Exemptions and Revenue for Wildfire Agencies and Counties Amendment, went into effect in California. As a result, those who inherit property have one year to make it their primary residence. Otherwise, it will be reassessed at market value, which leads to a significant tax increase. When the parents die, the kids get a new tax bill in the mail with the sympathy cards. It's horrible. Susan Shelley, vice president of communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, told California insider CMAC Horami that the purpose was to generate more sales by making the market turn over more often. But here's something that people don't realize about Proposition 19. Affordable housing in California will be wiped out in a generation because all of these older apartment buildings that are family-owned, the mom-and-pop landlords, when they pass away and the kids inherit those four-unit, six-unit, ten-unit buildings, duplexes, they will be reassessed to market value. Shelley said if those units and buildings are rented, the new owners will have to increase rent for tenants or sell that building because they wouldn't be able to pay those taxes. And they're not going to be able to raise the rent because of rent control. And the tenants will end up evicted and the building will end up sold. And you do that across the whole state of California for five years, 10 years, 20 years, you're going to wipe out all that older affordable housing stock. And that is a disaster. That helps no one. The proposition also allocates additional revenue or net savings to wildfire agencies and counties. Firefighting is a state priority, or should be. It should be funded from the general fund before they fund anything else. That's, that's extremely important. It should not be funded through trickery and gimmicks on the backs of people who have just lost a parent. That's just wrong. The California Association of Realtors backed Prop 19 with about $50 million. Shelley and the Taxpayers Association have been trying to educate the public and voters to defeat Proposition 19 and 15. Prop 15 would have forced reassessment of all commercial property in the state to market value, which would hurt businesses. They hope to revert the law back to allow the property transfer without reassessment. They need to collect a million signatures by mid-April. Coming up, Yoon Suk-yeol is South Korea's new president. He's expected to seek a stronger alliance with the United States and take a tougher stance on North Korea and China. 
and a 14-year-old girl has been saved from drug dealers in Paris. The teenager was rescued by the founder of a local organization. He shares details on how he managed to find her and provide help. Coming up on NTD. Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea's People Power Party was elected president today, defeating the ruling Democratic Party's Lee Jae-myung. The election was one of the closest fought races in recent history, and the result will shape Asia's fourth largest economy for the next five years. Yoon's expected to seek a stronger alliance with the United States and take a tougher line on North Korea. He's also said he would take a more assertive stance on China. Lee, for his part, had called for a greater reconciliation with North Korea and closer cooperation with China, South Korea's largest trading partner. Yoon had been current President Moon Jae-in's prosecutor general, but he resigned and joined the opposition party last year after spearheading high-profile investigations into corruption scandals involving Moon's allies. Now a special report from France about the increased use of crack and cocaine in Paris. Authorities are, recons- authorities are considering injection rooms to create a safe space for crack users, but drug use monitoring groups are pleading for a different solution. One such organization helps rescue young people trapped in crack user camps. NTD's France correspondent David Vivez visits one of those camps. 14-year-old teenager Edine escaped from her home in West France in January. Her mother, Marine, had no news from her until she heard her daughter was eventually found in a crack user's camp after getting mixed up with the wrong people. She said she called the police in vain. Marine was in despair and feared she would never see her daughter again. As a last resort, she contacted different anti-drug associations on Facebook until someone called Tarak Sassi answered her call. I'd lost all courage. When I called Tarak on the phone, it gave me power to overcome that. I thought... Wow, I'm not alone. He will help me. Tarak is from an association until recently entitled Paris Anti-Crack Collective. He started to do research to find Edine right after the phone call from Marie. Edine's mother threw a bottle in the water by reaching us. For two days, we mobilized the team in different camps. We searched in different camps all over Paris. He finally found the teenager, now weighing 40 pounds and close to a life-threatening situation. She has since been admitted to a rehab house close to her hometown. Our crew filmed these pictures in the camp where she was found. The camp drones in crack users from the capital. Some there were very hostile and threw glass bottles at us as we tried to film. The tent is there. She was in there. The police came first, then the parents came a few minutes later. The camp is at Port de la Villette in large cultural park in Paris. But the area is blighted by violence, according to its residents. This cafe owner says life here has become unbearable. Crack users get in coffee shop with knives and show little restraint in front of the staff and clients. He says the city hall and police don't take the issue seriously. The city hall and police only move the problem from one place to another rather than find a solution. There are people living here. We cannot handle a problem of this scale. And according to Tarak's association, crack usage seems to be spreading across the French capital. There is no official data on the increase of the crack users' population in Paris. But the Paris City Hall budget for tackling the problem has been revised from 3 million to 24 million euros this year. It will be spent on injections room in the capital, as decided by a ministerial decree two weeks ago. 
Police will not intervene with crack users within a 300-meter perimeter around these places. For Tarak, this is only adding fuel to the flame. Drugs injection sites are a nightmare for residents. This creates a 300-meter perimeter where drug users wander, drug dealers sell their products. It creates a danger zone that's impossible. Moreover, this is just the supporting and maintaining this wrong situation. The City Hall created social hotels where crack users can reside for free. First injection rooms could be created in the coming months after the City Hall decided upon their locations. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, a pianist seeks to use music to help Ukrainians find peace. He's playing piano for people fleeing the war zone. And an expedition finds a sunken ship not seen since 1915. The ship was crushed by ice off the coast of Antarctica. That and more here on NTD News. Two million people have fled Ukraine since the beginning of the Russian invasion. It's estimated that half, nearly half of those refugees have crossed into Poland. At the very worst moment in these refugees' lives, a German musician is offering them a kind welcome. Let's meet the Piano Man for Peace. As the world's newest war refugees step into Poland from Ukraine, they arrive to an unexpected sound. at the Medica-Poland border crossing, playing his heart out just for them. I'm just trying to welcome all the refugees. And I know that all those people, they hear bombing, guns shooting, uh, cannons, and whatever. Davide Martello traveled from Germany the piece is starting right here. A piano man for peace. I have a trailer and I just drove like 17 hours straight. I turned the music very loud so they can hear me everywhere. That is my purpose. And the message is received. This is another stop on the Piano Man's Peace Tour. Taxi Square, um, 2014 in Ukraine too, in Donetsk. Uh, Afghanistan with the army, Bataclan, Charlie Hebdo. His next stop, Lviv, Ukraine. Before I die or something happens, I at least want to do something. Maybe I can soften Putin's heart with music because everybody loves music. I bet Putin loves music too.
The Kiev City Ballet danced to a full house in Paris yesterday for the last show of a French tour that has left part of the company stranded. Now unable to return to Ukraine, the young dancers took to the stage in the heart of the French capital to perform in support of the Ukrainian people. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us this report. Director of Kiev City Ballet Ivan Kozlov was on stage with his dancers during rehearsals at the Théâtre du Châtelet Paris before their final bow of their French tour. The deputy director talked of the emotional toll on the company watching the war going on back home. We're both physically and emotionally exhausted. It's been a very long, I don't know, very long half of my life, I think, these past <laughs> several days. Um, everyone in the ballet is worried about their families, about loved ones, friends, colleagues at home. It's, it's been very difficult. The special evening performance had the dance director of the Paris Opera, along with some of her company's best, joining them for an open class before performing together a medley of ballet classics. Being able to focus on work is kind of a bright point in our day when we get to focus on the ballet steps and focus on music and something other than the conflict in Ukraine. The war has created huge upheaval for the company and its performers. One of the dancers is heading to the Ukrainian border in the coming days to pick up her young daughter, who will be accompanied out of the country. And not all of the company made it to the tour. And uh, the most of our artists are stuck in Ukraine. They expect to come to join us after the first performance but they couldn't. The city of Paris and the ballet community have helped find temporary accommodation for the Ukrainian dancers who say they wish to continue dancing in France and elsewhere. They round off the evening with their national anthem. All proceedings will go to NGOs collecting and shipping humanitarian aid to Ukraine and neighboring countries. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. The wreck of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance has been found over a hundred years after it became trapped in sea ice and sank off the coast of Antarctica. An expedition set off from Cape Town, South Africa in February on a mission to locate it. NTD's Neil Woodrow reports. The wreckage of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance was found in the Weddell Sea off the coast of Antarctica. The shipwreck was discovered on March the 5th, 100 years to the day since Shackleton was buried. Expedition leader John Shears said his team had made polar history by completing what he called the world's most challenging shipwreck search. Endurance was found at a depth of 1,000 feet and four miles south of the position originally recorded by the ship's captain. Sir Ernest and his crew set out on the first land crossing of Antarctica, but Endurance did not reach land and became trapped in dense ice. The 28 men on board were stranded for 10 months, and theirs is considered one of the great survival stories of human history. They trekked across the sea ice, living off seals and penguins, before reaching the uninhabited Elephant Island in lifeboats. From there, Shackleton and some of the crew rode 800 miles to South Georgia, where they sought help at a whaling station. On his fourth rescue attempt, Shackleton managed to pick up the rest of the crew from Elephant Island in 1916, two years after setting off from London. The endurance is now protected as a historic site and monument under the Antarctic Treaty. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. The Milwaukee County Zoo has new otter pups, the first surviving litter for the zoo. 
The three male and one female pups were born to mom Shamrock and dad Malarkey on February 7th. The zoo says Shamrock is extremely attentive and stays with the pups constantly in an off-exhibit holding area. Zookeepers have been careful to keep a consistent routine for Shamrock so that there's no distress. The zoo says the pups appear to be healthy and developing well. The pups will remain off-exhibit for the next few months. They don't have names yet. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chenny Wu.